Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing that's just feeding your greed. Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it. Hello, simpletons. You're listening to the Minimalist Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. And I'm Ryan Nicodemus. And together, we're the Minimalists. T.K. Coleman is out today on the concussion protocol. (laughs) (laughs) He banged his head against the wall too many times. (laughs) No, he just has a children's cold, and we didn't want him coming in here getting everyone sick. But don't worry, Alabama's still here. I am indeed. We've got the rest of our team, Jordan No More, Professor Sean, Danny Unknown, and then watching on the live stream, we got Emma the Immigrant, and Social Jess, and Podcast Sean, and everyone else. And uh, today we have a very special guest with us. Before we get to our special guest, I just want to say big thanks to you, our Patreon subscribers, for supporting the private podcast. You keep our podcast and YouTube channel 100% advertisement free because, say it with me, y'all, advertisements suck. Yeah, thanks, patrons. Oh, we have a very special guest today. Yeah. We're going to talk about inner conflict. We're going to talk about tension. We're going to talk about paradoxes and dilemmas. We're going to talk about either or thinking versus both and thinking. Mm. Wendy Smith is in the studio with us. Ladies and gentlemen, Wendy Smith. Yeah. Yes. Thanks for being here, Wendy. Thank you all. It's so <laughs> fun to be here with the two of you, with oh, all of you. Yeah. Oh, well, your book is, I just got it on Friday and I'm, I'm more than halfway through it already. And I find it to be so fascinating because this is exactly what we often do in our culture is Mm. we're so binary and it feels like social media has really amped up the right or wrong and also the righteousness as well. And this is an antidote, I think, to a lot of our self-righteousness in many ways. What prompted you and Marianne to even start talking about this topic of both and thinking, which by the way, I'll hold the book up. If you're watching the video version of the podcast, this is the book. We'll put a link to it in the show notes as well. It's called Both and Thinking. This book is 25 years in the making. So Marianne and I started the research that's the foundation for this book when I was a doctoral student 25 years ago. Oh, wow. At a little school called Harvard, I believe. Little school in Boston. (laughs) Weird flex, Wendy, but all right. (laughs) We just dropped the H-bomb. Ryan and I have a friend who uh, went to college in Boston as well. Right. (laughs) I thought if you went to Harvard, you had to say it like Harvard. (laughs) I'm just kidding. You hide it when you're here. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Exactly. 25 years ago, I like to say I stalked Marianne. She had written a Mm -hmm. paper on paradox. And at that time, a lot of academics did not believe, a lot of people did not believe that we should move from either or to both and. We had to Mm. do a lot of work to say there is value in moving from either or logical, linear thinking into Mm. both and more complex, sometimes irrational, feeling absurd thinking. Mm. And then over the last 25 years, we have an amazing community of academics, colleagues that have been doing research on not just how to move to both, not just if to move to both and, but also how. Mm. So what we've seen in the last 25 years is lots of people are talking about moving to the win-win, the both and, the right and right. And the question is not just if to do it, but how. So that's what inspired the book. How do we do it? Well, we have Mm. a lot of questions that I think will involve 
the thoughts that you have in here around tension and dilemma and so forth. So I think we should start with our callers. If you have a question for our show, you can give us a call 406-219-7839 or email a voice memo right from your phone to podcast at theminimalists.com. Let us know if you're a private podcast subscriber so we can prioritize your message. Our first question today is from Brian. Hey there, Brian from Grand Rapids, Minnesota, and I am a thankful VIP patron. I'm looking for some guidance or potential strategies for helping shorten a cycle of inner conflict that I see repeat in my life over and over, but until now have not been able to step back and recognize. I'll use the latest example for me because it condensed what in other examples may take days, weeks, or months to transpire into less than an hour from start to finish. Last week, I visited a local restaurant I had never visited before to pick up some takeout food. And within the span of two minutes of trying to navigate this place, I walked in on both the kitchen staff and the woman's bathroom. It was a quick double hit of embarrassment that really frustrated me at a deep level. Herein lies my inner conflict cycle. Whenever I do something wrong or embarrassing, I immediately spike into some disgust and self-loathing, like, what the hell, dude? And a quick litany of other similar comments in my mind. Then I transition from those into a kiddie pool of shame, where I sit there until I'm pretty convinced of those untrue and hurtful comments. Then, finally, whether a quick cycle of inner conflict like this one, or more serious ones that could take me weeks or months or even years to work through, I make it to perspective and wisdom. So, in perspective and wisdom, I stepped out of the kiddie pool and spoke the truth that you're not an idiot, you had never been there before, the doors were not well marked, and you will definitely know your way around next time. All is well. Essentially, I crave the quick succession I had in this example from event to laughing it off and moving on and can't help but wonder if I could get better at this life hacking so that this inner conflict in more serious areas of my life could be overcome. Is there anything I can do to short circuit this cycle and get to perspective and wisdom so that I can see things as they actually are more quickly? Now, Wendy, obviously there's conflict here, but it's certainly inner conflict and exclusively inner conflict. Although I think at some level, you could say every ounce of conflict is ultimately inner conflict, mm -hmm. right? Because how he's reacting, he's reacting in a way that is bringing him shame or disgust, or he's feeling inadequate in the moment. He feels stupid. Ah, oh, what an idiot. And there's a certain narrative we all tell ourselves, right? And sometimes it's, oh, I'm such an idiot. Mm -hmm. Or other times it's, I'm awesome, right? And neither one of those are necessarily earned. It's just a story we tell ourselves. Now, in the book, you talk about tension and dilemma. This is a dilemma of his, for sure, that's causing some sort of tension in his life. So how do we unpack the wisdom that you have in the book with respect to dilemma and help Brian better understand where he goes from here? Well, I love the question, Brian. Great example. Paradoxically, the way to let go of our difficult emotions is we have to start by accepting them. Mm. You guys have talked about this on the show before, that if we feel that immediate sense of embarrassment, it can lead to these longstanding vicious cycles. We feel embarrassed. We feel shame that we feel embarrassed. We want to let go of that difficult emotion. So we feel guilt that we can't let go of it. And then these difficult emotions have a stronghold on us. The alternative is that instead of trying to push them aside, 
move on quickly, we can move on by starting to accept them. So in the book, we talk about finding comfort in the discomfort. And what we mean by that is not ignore the discomfort, hide it under the rug, pretend it doesn't exist. It's acknowledging, recognizing, accepting the discomfort. And here, I am a big fan of Tara Brock. She is a Buddhist psychologist, and she talks about radical acceptance. And what she would say, and Brian, here's the short circuit, is to start with saying yes to all those emotions. Yes, I feel embarrassed. Yes, I feel shame. Yes, I feel a little guilty that I can't let. Yes. And it's through that yes that we can allow their stronghold to loosen on us and move forward. Yeah. I love the uh, learning how to live with it. I had, I was talking to someone years ago, um, kind of, uh, I have had like addiction problems in the past and he was someone who uh, was sober. And I asked them, I'm like, hey, man, I really want to let go of this. Like, how can I let go of it? And he was like, well, that's that's the problem. He's mm. like, you're going to have to live with it. There's no letting go. Right. And you have to, like, dance with it on a day-to-day basis and, like, learn how to, uh, let, yeah, learn how to have those impulses in your life. And, yeah, I totally agree. It, it's interesting to me because, like, the person that I treat the worst, it's mm. me. Right. Like, I would never call Josh an idiot. I would never call Malabama an idiot. But I look in the mirror all the time and I'm like, oh, you idiot. I can't believe you did that thing. And I have to catch myself when I'm when I'm talking to myself that way because I know it's not helping the situation. Mm-hmm. And uh, it makes me think about in your book how y'all talk about these uh, like groups of folks. I'm paraphrasing, so correct me where I'm like really off base here, Wendy. But uh, you basically, you know, basically one group was told, hey, you're you're a standout group. And uh, you have potential to really like have these crazy big growth spurts. And then the other group wasn't told anything. And there was nothing that um, uh, that 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 led to you telling the group this, except for this was the group that you told it to. That was it. And um, if I remember correctly, like there was a pretty high percentage of people in that group that just had that one little, you know, one little seed planted that actually were doing better in certain areas just because they were given that that uh, that encouragement of, hey, you're someone who stands out. And when I was reading that, I'm like, oh, this is why mantras are so important. Right. Yeah. Our mindsets matter. Mm-hmm. It's not, and it's our hearts and our mind. They have to work together. How we frame something matters. So that's important. Um, I'm a huge fan of the Buddhist idea of not shooting the second arrow. Have you heard of this? mm So the Buddhist idea is that we feel pain, we don't have to engage in the suffering along with the pain. So the first arrow hits us, Mm. it's painful. But then we feel so anxious about standing in the way and we make ourselves feel bad about the fact that we feel pain, that we expand, exacerbate the suffering. Mm. So how can we acknowledge the pain, acknowledge the addiction, acknowledge the embarrassment, acknowledge the shame, acknowledge that we walked into the women's bathroom instead of the men's bathroom, honor it, but not let it expand and uh, exponentially grow so that it defines how we go forward. Yeah. I think there's something here about intentions as well. Intentions aren't everything, but they certainly matter here. Like if he intended to sneak into the women's bathroom, that's different from, oh, I made a mistake. Of course, a mistake ceases to be a mistake once you've learned a lesson from it. And by the way, if you've done it once, you're probably not going to make that same mistake over and over and over unless you just choose to forget the lesson that you've learned, right? I'm also thinking about what Brian's saying here. 
about the embarrassment. Yes, it's okay to get embarrassed, to, to acknowledge that emotion, like to pick it up, right? But then when we cling, I think this is what you're saying with the second arrow thing, when we cling to that embarrassment, it's much more difficult to let it go. How do you let go of something? You simply cease the clinging. Right. So you can see the embarrassment. Oh, I picked this up. Huh. I guess I can set it down now as well. And as you set it down more and more, and that's all that Brian's really looking to do, I don't have a how-to for you, but the deeper understanding here is everything that you've picked up, you can put down. Mm. And the sooner you see it for what it is, you know, if I think I'm picking up my luggage and I look down, there's a snake in my hand, you don't need to tell me the seven steps to let it go. <laughs> I'm merely going to stop clinging immediately. I'm going to get it away from me as quickly as possible. The same thing is true with any of these other so-called negative emotions. They're not really bad emotions. They're, they're merely data telling you something about the decisions or the actions that you've made and informing you how to make different decisions or actions in the future. We have a call. We have several colleagues working on this idea of emotional ambivalence, meaning we have these what we would seem as good and bad emotions happening at the same time. And that's what leads us to actually be more productive. So we have these these emotions that we see as negative, embarrassment, shame, and those from those are what we learn. We need those. And yet, if we hold on to that too tightly and not add in the, we can learn, we can engage, then we're stuck in this vicious cycle. But if we can say, oh, I learned I shouldn't walk into that bathroom because that's the wrong bathroom. And I felt shame and I felt embarrassed. That's what led me to learn that. Well, then we can use them productively. So how, so our colleague Naomi Rothman at Lehigh talks about the value of emotional ambivalence, bringing these two types of emotions together to allow us to productively and creatively move forward. Mm, Josh is very good at emotional ambivalence. <laughs> <laughs> the nicest way anyone's ever called me apathetic. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah, um, I don't know if this will work for Brian or not, but something that I use for myself is when I find myself uh, being so negative, I start to think about like, how would I talk to a five-year-old? Mm. Or like, how would I talk to the five-year-old Ryan Nicodemus? Mm. And like that kind of helps me get a little bit more compassion for myself. Um, yeah. yeah, just one little technique. Yeah, I had a moment just just this past week uh, where I was starting into that downward emotional spiral. I was tired. Tired makes me feel a little grumpy. I got home. The dishes were in the sink. Dishes in the sink make me feel grumpy. Then they make me feel angry. Then I start to blame. Then I start to wonder where my kids and husband were to do the dishes in the sink. And I was about to spiral into something really negative. Mm. And I just paused, right? I just paused. It's, yeah, I'm tired. Yes. Yes, I'm grumpy. Yes, this grumpiness makes me feel angry. Yes, I don't need to act on that. So mm. it just, it diffuses that negative emotion, gives us that pause, if you will. So we don't need to behave based on those negative emotions that lead to even more shame, guilt, anger, frustration in that downward spiral. Yeah, we start to get into this should thinking. Right. Uh, these dishes should have been done. Um, I shouldn't have to feel this way. And yeah, acknowledging it and being like, oh, like there are no shoulds. Like this is the way it is. It's that's a very ambivalent approach. It's not, uh, it's not good or bad. It's just an observation. And uh, yeah, I totally agree. It's it's a great way to kind of help diffuse things and calm it down a little bit. Ryan. My kids were really happy that I did that too. <laughs> <laughs> our our friend Dan Harris, who you all listeners know from our first documentary, 
minimalism, he just put out a TED talk and he talks about the downward toilet spiral of Mm -hmm. emotions, Mm -hmm. right? But the counter to that is after you pause, there's also an upward spiral and joy begets joy. Mm -hmm. Contentment begets contentment. Contribution begets contribution. Love Yes. Begets love. Caring begets caring. And so it becomes infectious. Your negative emotions, so-called negative emotions, if you're raging or angry, yes, other people are going to feel that. They're going to sense that. Mm. But if you're joyous and you pause and you make room, because joy does have room for grief. It has room for sadness. It has room for discontent. It has room for confusion. Mm. If we have that pause, then we can have that upward spiral of beautiful emotions that are contagious for the people around us. Yes. Brian, I'd love to send you a copy of Both and Thinking by Wendy Smith and uh, Marianne Lewis. And uh, we'll put a link to the book in the show notes as well. Our next question is from Caroline. I'm Caroline and I'm a new Patreon subscriber in the UK. I've just had a baby and will need to look for a job in a few months time after losing one of mine while on maternity leave. My background is journalism, but more recently I've been working in PR and I remain a local politician, which is low paid but highly stressful, takes a lot of time and won't sustain my family financially in the long term. Losing a job has affected my confidence despite knowing it was not due to my ability and that I'm extremely capable. I have lots of transferable skills, but I'm finding the decision about what job to look for overwhelming, as there are so many jobs available at the moment across many different sectors. Previously, I've had lower paid but stressful jobs in the public or charity sectors, as I wanted to help others and for my work to be meaningful. But because of the stress and the bleeding of work into my personal time in previous roles and still in politics, and also now having a baby too... I'm tempted to apply for roles that need less input or critical thought at the expense of purpose and my ambition. There's also the question of how many hours to do versus childcare costs, which are massive in the UK at the moment, and whether to go for a short-term or permanent role. There's just too much choice on top of me not being sure what I want to do next. What's your view on this? And what does minimalist job hunting look like? So, Wendy, a few things stood out to me when I was listening to her question. A few things from your book. So, you talk about either-or thinking in the book. And so I just want to talk about this, where you say, this is on page 67, either or thinking is limiting at best, detrimental at worst. And I think sometimes we think as though, well, in order to be a successful parent, I can't have a job. In order to have a job, I can't be a successful. It's that either or thinking where it's incredibly limiting and it can even be detrimental so that both things become a catastrophe in our lives of sorts. And then later in the book, you also talk about assumptions. I know we already talked about earlier the the discomfort and, and how in a way, except because she's uncomfortable right now, but accepting that discomfort is rather comforting in, in a way, or it at least increases your ability to experience comfort or experience less discomfort. But can we talk a bit about the either or thinking? And can we also talk about assumptions with respect to Caroline's question? Yes, Caroline, I, again, I love the question. And my answer to that question of do I go for the lower paying but passionate job or the higher paying but stressful job? The answer is both, right? If someone gives you a choice between A and B, do you know what the right answer is? Hmm. C. The right (laughs) answer is C. And 
just noticing that the framing of this is that false dichotomy. It's that either or, it's that question of A or B. Mm. So we can start with how do we shift the question, change the question, because that opens up all kinds of possibilities. Mm. This goes back to the study, part of the studies that we've done, where um, our colleagues in, uh, our colleague Ella Marone Spector in INSEAD invited people to just change the question between an and and an or in an experiment, and it opened up all kinds of new creative possibilities. So mm. if we start by saying, how can I? What is possible for both a job that I'm passionate about, that I care about, that I'm excited about, and that will allow me the kind of resources that I need for my new child, for my family, for what I need to have a productive and happy life? How can I do both? That's the start. Mm, I love it. I mean, I, I keep going back to uh, values. Like that when I when I was listening to her question, it's like, I know for me, um, when I got my first high paying, stressful job, it was all about the money. Right. And that's, you know, that's what I obviously valued because that's what I was going for. And every promotion after that, it was just more money, but it was also more stress. And it wasn't until um, I got to a boiling point where I'm like, okay, something has to change. And uh, what changed was me getting clear on what I wanted out of uh, mm-hmm. not just my job, but my life. And I mean, you can go to the minimalists.com forward slash uh, V. Yeah. Yeah. And you, there's a values worksheet there. And it's super helpful because like this is the foundation. This is like the compass I think anyone should use when they're making these major life decisions. And I agree, like it doesn't have to be either or. There's something out there. It's going to take a lot of work, um, but that's that's what simple is. Simple is not easy. Simple is a lot, a lot of yeah. work. It's a lot of dedication. But um, yeah, I think that she totally has an opportunity here to get everything she wants. It's uh, It'll take a little time though, for sure. I love, so simple is complex. Mm-hmm. There is complexity and simplicity. And, um, you know, I love the values worksheet. We talk about connecting to a higher purpose. So that's your why, that's your values, that's your, what's the purpose. And it's partially to align your decisions with those values. And it's partially that the higher purpose, and I know you talk about the values of where do you want to see yourself in 10 years? What's your future self? How do you align with your future self? So connecting to a higher purpose is thinking out to the horizon, the long term. If you look, if you're dealing with conflict and you look out to the horizon, it steadies that chaos in the moment. It steadies the the choppy waves. So the values create that long term. They also create this overarching framework where the inner conflict, these competing demands can both coexist. Mm. So if you have a conflict between two people, one of the ways to start in navigating that conflict is what are we trying to accomplish collectively? So uh, again, I'll go back to my husband and I might have conflict over what are the ways we want to discipline our kids around screen time. Screen mm. time's a big deal in our family. Mm. How do we, but the, the over, we, he might have a point of view. I have a point of view. We're conflicting over which way to go. The overarching higher purpose is we both love our kids and want the best for them. Okay, in the context of that, we can then negotiate how to move forward. So for Carolyn, in the context of what's your higher purpose, what's your long-term goals, you can navigate how do I accommodate that in the moment, achieving my long-term goals, a steady, happy family, productive self, productive kids, Mm. in that context, I need both resources to enable my kids to be happy and I want a career that I'm passionate about. And it's in that context that those two can come together. Yeah. Yeah. To answer the 
the last question she asked about what does minimalist job hunting look like? <laughs> I will say this. Ultimately, mm-hmm. the the North Star is, I can't believe I get to do this. Mm-hmm. And we talked about this last week or a few weeks ago on the private podcast. But we, I when I come in here on Tuesdays, we, we do these. We do a live stream on Tuesdays. And... Oh man, I can't believe I get to do I have to leave my house at like 5.30 a.m. to get here on time and drive down from Ventura County. But I get to do that. And ultimately, get to is so much more power than powerful than have to. Mm-hmm. Now, it's true that sometimes you'll have to do some things to get to the area in which you get to do them, right? And I would do this for no money whatsoever. I'm grateful that we have a list of Patreon subscribers who pay us and they pay Jordan and Sean and Emma and Jess and Mallory and Danny and everyone else on the team mm-hmm. and they help out, but I would I get to do this. And so like it's wonderful to get paid for the thing that you feel like wow, I get to do this. And so if you don't feel like oh yeah, I if you or, or let me rephrase that. If you feel like Oh, man, I guess I have to do this. Mm. Okay. That's a, maybe a stepping stone, but that's not where you want to end up. You want to end up somewhere where it's like, oh, I can't believe I get to do this. I think that's right. To add to the... So I, I think the process is start with your values, start with your higher purpose, know mm-hmm. where you're going, your North Star. I think the next step is knowing what these competing demands are each about. What do you want the resources for? Is it in service of just pursuing money? Well, that unto itself can be kind of empty, yeah. but those resources are valuable. You need them. What are you passionate about? Really separating. We talk about it as separating and connecting, separating out your different pieces, because mm. that will allow you to come back together and find something better that a, your passion may be local politics, but there might be a whole lot of other things you're passionate about along the way. It gives you lots of possibility. Mm. Then I want to add one more thing, because I think it's really important in this both and thinking, which is we tend to think that both and thinking is about finding the ideal win-win in the moment. And sometimes that happens. That's great. Your win-win, your ideal hybrid, your integration. We call it the mule because it's the hybrid between the donkey and the horse. Mm -hmm. But both and thinking and both and thinking is also about noticing that we're making lots of decisions over time. We might not find that ideal win-win in the moment. We might be shifting between these opposing ideas in in micro succession, experimenting along the way until we find that moment that we finally hit that perfect ideal. Yeah. It's beautiful. Our next question is from Sarah. My name is Sarah. I'm currently residing in Oxford, England. Increasingly, my default state is becoming more so the sky is falling and less everything is awesome. With inflation, volatile markets, looming recession, resource scarcity and climate change, it's all overwhelming and freaking me out. Can you guys give practical, methodical steps that will help me get through the inevitable zombie apocalypse? Is there real hope for regular folks? What should we invest in? How should we prepare? What should we consider when making decisions with regards to the future? Now, Sarah, the sky isn't falling. You're falling. (laughs) And there's nothing to hold on to. Mm. And as soon as I realized this, that Mm. everyone, when they're born, is sort of pushed out of an airplane and they're plummeting toward their death. Yeah. And we try to hold on to things that we see in the air along the way. I'm going to hold on to this house or this car or this career, thinking it's going to stave off the inevitable, right? Mm. Yeah. Now, of course, it seems to me like 
Sarah has been watching a lot of news, and news is really good at aggregating your eyeballs onto catastrophes that are far away from you and often have very little or no influence on your life. They have no direct effect on your life quite often. There are exceptions to that, obviously, but most of the things that are propagated by any news media is propagated in order to get our attention so they can sell us advertisements. It's the reason we say advertisements suck on this podcast. All of the cancel culture and political climate and and the dysfunction is really a byproduct, either directly or indirectly, of advertising culture. Because censorship is not the corporations really censoring us. It's the corporations who are advertising on these platforms Mm. that are censoring us. Mm. And so we have to be really careful and understand the true motives of any media outlet. And it's not that they're evil or bad. They're there to sell you products and services from other major corporations. And it's not necessarily aligned with your interests or your values. Now, Wendy, in the book, you talk about Rabbit holes versus wrecking balls mm. versus trench warfare. Yeah. And I thought that was a perfect uh, sort of keyhole look into Sarah's question. Yeah. Um, indeed. Uh, you know, one uh, rabbit holes, wrecking balls, trench warfare are all of the negative, vicious, the patterns of negative, vicious cycles that happen when we either or. And Sarah, first of all, I want to empathize. It feels like the world is a little chaotic and you're not alone. And uh, we have to take action to be able to navigate those spaces on our own. What struck me as Sarah was asking this question was this tension between the magnitude of our problems and what feels like the potential for us to actually navigate those problems. Mm. And this false trade-off between big changes and small actions. It's a real false trade-off. I hear this all the time when we talk about change, big change movements, possibilities, which is that how can my, you know, we, we need massive systemic change or do we need individual hearts and minds and actions to change things? Well, both. Yeah. We need both. And if we get so caught up in the large magnitude, we go down this rabbit hole that nothing is possible and then we get stuck That's the rabbit hole. We go down one side of a possibility and we get stuck. Mm. One way to navigate that big change is to start with the small actions, right? The Margaret Mead, a uh, committed, thoughtful set of citizens to make change and start small, changing hearts and minds. And Sarah, for us, for as individuals, it means starting to take action on some of these things that leads to collectively the bigger shift but if we just stand there and do nothing, we get nowhere. Yeah. No, I, yeah, I love that. I uh, I like what you talked about how we're all falling to our deaths slowly. <laughs> but, you know, like when I when I look at it that way, it's a relief in the sense that um, no matter what's happening around me, it's like it, it helps me appreciate like, well, here I am in this moment. Yeah. And how lucky am I to like have this experience? Like I don't look at the universe revolving around me. I mean, maybe I do in some aspects. I think we're all a little solipsistic to a certain degree, but different podcast, uh, we can talk about that. But instead of me looking at it like, oh, the universe revolves around me, it's more about like, oh, like this is the universe's existence. And I am so lucky to have this little place in it. And so from that perspective, 
yeah, I don't have these grandiose plans to change the world. I'm open to doing that. Like, I'd love to change the world, but like, that's not my expectation. My expectation, or maybe um, a better way to say it, is my standard mm-hmm. is like, I'm going to do what I can with who I am, with the resources that I have. And I'm going to try and, you know, give as much as I can. And that's that's who I am in general. I was, uh, we were having a conversation yesterday. I was talking about how when I interact with someone, um, yeah, I'm trying to give them something. I'm trying to like, you know, maybe make their day a little better, or make them a little happier or whatever. And what did you say to me, Josh? You said, um, was it Kapil Gupta? You were like, oh, well, you know, you're like, this is what I love about Kapil Gupta. He's not trying to give you anything. He's just trying to exist. Yeah, he's not trying to change your mind. He's not trying to help anyone either. Which yeah. I, we have a question about help later that I think uh, will illuminate this quite a bit. Mm-hmm. I, I've realized that one of the most dangerous people in the world is the helper. Mm. Mm. A helper, I wrote an essay about this uh, a couple of years ago, but a helper will take a fish out of the ocean to keep it from drowning or to take an eagle out of the sky to prevent it. I'm just helping you so you don't fall, right? Mm. And there's a difference between help and support. Mm. Sure. And I think what we do with this podcast is we support people in their healing, yeah. their healing their relationship with stuff, healing their relationship with people, healing their relationship with mental clutter, psychological clutter, emotional clutter. Mm-hmm. We feel compelled to help them, mm. but to help them is to try to change them in a way. Instead of trying to change them, I can be a support beam. And if you need to lean against me, you can. Mm-hmm. And so I can be that support structure for anyone else without needing to go out and force the change onto them. Yeah, I yeah, I I, I get that. And I think that's a great um it's a great way to look at it. So um yeah, I, I'm trying to support people. And that is that's just my my being. Like that's just I, I mm-hmm. if I didn't do that, I wouldn't be being genuine. So is that going to change the world? No. But can I, you know, get a cup of coffee and be like, hey, how's your day going? And here in LA they're looking at me like, what do you need? Like, you don't care about my day. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay. Um, I just, you know, want a small coffee. Um, but seriously, like, how's your day going? Mm. And then they're like, oh, like maybe this, maybe this guy actually does care. And I can create these little meaningful interactions on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, it's not going to like change the world. It may not even send out a ripple. Yeah. But I mean, if everyone could at least take that radical uh, ownership of their day-to-day actions, like that is really where those those big changes are going to take effect. It's it's unfortunate that like, I, don't, I mean, it's in America and I'm sure it's in other countries too, but we have this like delusion that if we vote for the right person, um, not just president, but let's just say on a local level, we have this delusion that all of a sudden our lives are going to be radically different. Mm-hmm. And that's just not the case. Like the president isn't going to clean up our room and do our laundry for us. Uh, you know, the, the the congressman or the state senator that we vote for, uh, they're not going to come and mow your lawn. Like we have to do these things. They're not going to be nice for you. They can't do it for you. And uh, yeah, I think taking that rad- radical ownership, that's the only thing that we can take responsibility for. Um, and yeah, every all the other problems that she's mentioning, those are going to be there whether or not we take that radical ownership. I love what you said about the news. Like, stop looking at the news. That mm-hmm. would be my number one thing is stop looking at the news because I do it to myself. And I'm speaking from uh, my own personal experience where when I f- find that like, oh my goodness, like we're all going to, we're either going to die because the world's going to catch fire from global warming or from nuclear warfare. And that's stressful. And when I catch myself thinking that, I'm like, where is this coming from? Oh, it's the uh, infotainment 
that I'm taking in, and I, I have to catch myself and and stay away from for, uh, away from from a little uh, for a little bit. So yes, Sarah, um, that would be step number one. I would say stop looking at the news so much, and um, you know, start looking at what you can do day to day. It's probably a good good first step. Yeah. Can I add an example yeah. here? Uh, well, as you were talking, Ryan, I was thinking about this parable. A man stands on, you know, standing there with two two little papers in their pocket. One paper says, I am nothing but a grain of sand in the universe, and I am the whole universe. So how do we hold those simultaneously? Mm-hmm. Okay, so here's a quick example that I was thinking of that we write about in the book. Um, we in our community, I, a colleague, Betsy Twitch, started us eco-bricking. So eco-bricking was started in the Philippines, the idea that there's tons of uh, plastic trash in the world and tons of bottles. Well, what if we took that plastic trash, packed it really tightly into the plastic bottles? Now we have bricks to build with. Mm. So we take all this uh, trash out of the landfill and we have these bricks to build with. Mm. We started eco-bricking in our community. Now, every once in a while, I'm stuffing in the little, uh, you know, Lay's chip wrappers into these bricks thinking, what am I doing when I look at this massive amount of plastic that there is in the world? I'm not doing a single thing. And yet, as I think about this and see my kids or see their schools that have started eco-bricking, there's this exponential growth of a shift of mindset that says, oh, this plastic trash is problematic. Mm. And so it we are taking small actions. We're not solving all the plastic that's out there in the ocean and in our landfills, but we're taking small actions that start creating a wave of possibility. And it's in those actions that we can see possibility going forward rather than getting stuck in the despair, the rabbit hole of the world is uh, hitting the zombie apocalypse. Yeah. Let's move on to some social media questions. You can follow The Minimalists on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Minimalists. Alabama, we got a question from Facebook. David wants to know, knowing that every choice I make constantly changes access to other opportunities gives me so much anxiety around decision-making. Mm. How can I get past this? Mm. I, in your book, you talk about replacing... So we, we, earlier, we talked about the upward spiral, right? Yeah. But almost pausing and then replacing... In fact, I, I wrote it down here. Page 171. Let me see if I could find it. Here's something pithy for you, though, David. Wonder is a fire extinguisher for anxiety. I've never experienced a deep sense of wonder and become more anxious as a result, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. And well, why is that? Because I'm anxious because I want a particular outcome. I have a particular expectation. But wonder doesn't mean I have a specific expectation. I'm just taking it all in. I'm getting curious in a way. So this is uh, from page 171 here, but you talk about building in pauses, accepting the discomfort, but then broadening our perspectives, mm. reaching for positive emotions such as energy, wonder, and excitement of uncertainty leads to expanded thinking, which spurs us to reach for further positive emotions. This feedback loop invites us to adopt a more open both-and approach to paradoxical tensions. Mm. And so getting back to David's question here, every choice I make constantly changes the other opportunities. And I get it because he's talking about deciding here. Every decision is, you know, the the root of decisions, incision to cut off from. So a decision is, in a way, cutting off. It is limiting you in in some way. And so maybe you can expand on this a bit, Wendy. Yeah. Uh, One of my advisors, my PhD advisors, Ellen Langer, would always say, 
It's not about making the right decision. It's about making the decision right. And and here's what I think she means, or here's what I've taken it to mean. Uh, We tend to think of these decisions as the fork in the road, and we're rejecting one path, and that's it. We're done, and we've moved forward. And in one way of seeing our possibilities is knowing that we're not just making one decision. It's one decision that leads to another opportunity, that leads to another opportunity, another opportunity, so that we're constantly shifting, experimenting, and trying new things. And we don't always know what that path in the road opens up for us until we take it. Right. Right. And so I, we, in the book, we talk about the Robert Frost poem, uh, the road not taken. Mm -hmm. And I think that limits us because it assumes that at each one decision is going to open up or change the rest of our, well, it might, but it Mm -hmm. doesn't talk about what opens up once we take a path, what else is available there, the experimentation, the possibilities. And so instead of the anxiety, there's the possibility, there's the hope, there's the wonder, the curiosity of what else comes next once we take that path. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, I don't know. I, I'm trying to find a, a, a way to really help it sink in here with this question um, with David that like right now in this moment, wherever you're at, David, right now in this moment where we are at right here, like we are giving up everything. Mm. This is the only thing that we have right now. And anything else that you can think of is an opportunity cost. And no matter what in life, there are these opportunity costs. So if you choose nothing, well, then you have nothing. And that's okay. Like there's nothing wrong with having nothing. But um, if you're taking nothing for the sake of not having everything, like you're really, you're just really doing yourself a disservice. And I, I don't know... Again, I'm trying to find a way where David can like really feel this in his heart and understand. Well, I can give you an example. Mm. Um, For me, a huge decision was a career decision. I went back for my PhD. Do I want to be an academic and study ideas? Or do I want to be what academics call the practitioner, a leader, someone who actually implements ideas? And this felt like you could just feel, I felt, the tug of war because it felt like if I go in one direction or the other, I cut off, I incise the other option. And the the pain and anxiety, I lived in that angst for several years. It was just really... And what I failed to see in that choice was that it wasn't about making the choice. It was about the right choice. It was about making the choice right by becoming an academic. What I didn't see, the wonder, the possibility of opening up to actually not just studying ideas, but actually getting to practice them, to lead them in new and different ways that I didn't see at that venture. Hmm. So it's not that I didn't have to make a decision. It's that did I need the anxiety associated with thinking that if I made one decision, I would lose out on all the other possibilities. Oh, I love that. So it's like you make the decision and then uh, you stay open to other possibilities and this decision even kind of unfolding in a way they didn't expect it to, which is pretty much everything in life. Like we we make a decision because we expect it to go one way. It's like Josh and I, you know, we started The Minimalists because, you know, we wanted to start a blog and share some stories. We had no idea that it would really become yeah. a podcast and documentaries but we were open to the possibilities of of it unfolding however it did. Instead of thinking about the cost of opportunity, the opportunity cost, what's the possibility of opportunity? Yeah. And the reason that's hard is because there's uncertainty in that. We can see the cost so much more clearly than we see the possibilities. And maybe that, Josh, goes back to your comment earlier about letting go, right? We talk about 
the importance of living in the both and is to uh, learn how to cope, not control. Hmm. Well, that's hard for us to do because it's really anxiety provoking. But how do we let go of the anxiety and the fear of uncertainty to accept, to embrace the uncertainty? Of course, David wouldn't know what to do if he got absolute certainty. He wouldn't know what to do right. with absolute control. Mm. That's a type of hell mm. to live in, right? Because if you can control everything all the time, mm -hmm. then there's no variety. There's no passion. The things that make life worth living, you need that dose of uncertainty. And so what David's really talking about here mm. is the fear of missing out. Mm. The fear of missing out the only reason that's a problem is because you have a particular expectation. Not only do I need the right thing, but I need the best right thing. Mm. And that's another kind of hell, right? Because if you're always getting the best thing and the best right thing and the next best thing, I'm getting this and this and I'm winning and winning and winning. What happens to a basketball team that wins every game repeatedly and never loses? They become the Harlem Globetrotters, right? <laughs> it's a parody of basketball. It's not even real. Because that's what that winning does to us. That's what full control. When you already know the outcome, mm -hmm. it takes all the life out of living. Yeah. The only way to learn is by making mistakes. The only way to learn is by trying something new and failing or not getting there. That's where learning happens. That's where growth happens. Yeah. Man, that is huge for the for the people of FOMO. And I am mm. one of those people of FOMO. I'm, uh, I don't know if you've ever looked at the Enneagram or anything, but... Uh, it's like a personality test. I'm a seven, which is basically like, give me the fire hose of fun. His deadly sin is gluttony. Yeah, right. Exactly. So um, I always, and I did this this summer, like I had way too much fun and I was exhausted and I'm like, mm. I can't do this to myself like this. I had all the fun, but I am like so tired. But with, with the FOMO thing, um, yeah, the antidote for me that I've taken away from this, Wendy, is instead of looking at everything you've missed out on, it's like be open to the possibilities that what you've given up, what you've allowed to potentially enter into your life. Yeah. I wonder if we can come up with the next uh, acronym that's yeah. not FOMO, but the possibilities of living in right. poly, right? Yeah, like, right, right, yeah. Of, of being open and curious about what's next. Yeah. yeah. I, I have heard people call it the joy of missing out. But mm -hmm. I would say what Ryan is saying is maybe even flipping the fear here, the fear of getting everything. Because if you mm -hmm. did actually get everything that you wanted, you would quickly realize that everything you want is not actually what you want. Mm. You also want the desire for the things you don't have. We have a question from Instagram. Django asks, I'm finally my own boss doing what I love, but now my wife and I aren't making enough to support a family. I was offered another job that would allow us the money and benefits to responsibly bring a child into the world, but it means trading one dream for another. How do I responsibly weigh these two decisions? Mm -hmm. I'm bummed that TK isn't here because he has this great quote. He says, dreams don't come true, decisions do. Yeah. Mm. And because we can dream, 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 dream and never do anything about those dreams, right? It's funny because most of the things, a skill is a great example of this. So like a skill that you learn, you're going to learn most of it in the first 20 hours. Mm. Like playing a guitar. If you've never played a guitar before, 
the skill that you'll pick up the first 20 hours of playing, so you play a half hour a day for 40 days, that's going to be the, the uh, on the parabola of learning. You're going to learn so much there. And of course, you'll continue to refine and learn more and improve and grow and, and change. But we never start the thing, whatever it, it is, right? And so we never get great at guitar because we never pick it up and just have those first 40. We always hear about the 10,000 hours. Mm, yes. But what about those first 20 hours? Right. The first 40 hours, the first 100 hours that actually give you the skill set in the first place. But of course, that's not what specifically what we're talking about here. Uh, when we're talking to Django here, um, how do we... Well, I'm not going to ask a how-to question. That'd be silly of me. Um, but Josh, how to's are, that's what everybody wants. Mm. Right. And they're great <laughs> if you wanted to learn how to make a pizza. Yeah. Right. But, uh, so methods and techniques can be really, really helpful when I'm repairing a bike or starting a fire, but that's mm -hmm. not what we're talking about here. We're talking about some either or thinking in the question, but let's, let's transition it into some both and thinking. There it is. It's the either or. How do I do this or this? Trade off, trade off this dream or that dream. My professional hazard being in the space of both and is that as soon as someone says an or, I say, what about the and? Which is how do we shift the question? Here, here's the how to. Shift the question, right? We, we talk about it. We, we like to say that meditation is a lifelong practice. You're constantly practicing and the way into it is focusing on your breath. Both anding is a lifelong practice and the way into it is start noticing how often we either or, we pose as trade-offs, we create these dichotomies, we create these dilemmas. How do we shift the question mm. to saying what is possible? How can we, and in this case, it's similar to the other listener's question, how can we uh, create or enter into productive work that's passionate, that we're excited about, that we're engaged with, and that gets us enough resources that we need to live. Mm -hmm. And that shift of question can open up possibilities. That's the start. In the book, yeah. you have a chapter. Um, it's called Creating Boundaries to Contain Tensions. Yes. And you talk about the higher purpose, but part of that, to understand what the higher purpose is, which at first sounds like 12-step terminology, right? Mm -hmm. Like what is, you know, trust your higher purpose, embrace your higher purpose, listen to your higher... But what we're really talking about here is what you call an overarching statement of vision that can motivate you uh, to embrace tension, mm -hmm. unite opposite poles, and focus on the longer term to minimize the short-term chaos. Can you talk about that a bit? Yes, Step one, or step one is change the question. Step two is higher purpose. Our values, our whys, our long-term goals, the possibilities, because it is encompassed within those that we are able to accommodate our competing demands. So in the moment, in the short term, it feels like we have to make a decision between what we're passionate about in our job and being able to have enough money, resources, or pay from our job. Money, money versus mission, profits versus passion. In the long term, our higher purpose allows us to say, how can we have enough resources to achieve what we're passionate about? And how can we engage with our passion so that it enables us to have the resources that we need? How do these things enable one another in service of that higher purpose? So mm -hmm. if we start by looking out at the horizon, we can more effectively or we can come up with more creative ways to understand our decision-making. And yeah. of course, there isn't a, well, 
when I look at passion versus profit, it's not that you have to sacrifice one for the other, obviously. Right. We often think that, you know, it's, hey, in order to make money, I'm going to have to give up on my dream, right? Or in order to pursue my dream, I'm going to have to give up on money. I will say that one tends to follow the other more frequently. So quite often what happens, we forsake the dream to pursue profit and rarely does passion follow profit. Mm. But quite often, profit will follow your passion. Right. So it's not that you follow your passion. You find something you can be passionate about. And then quite often, if you get good enough at it, you add enough value to other people's lives, profit will follow eventually. Absolutely. Our, our, uh, a friend and colleague, Adam Grant, Wharton professor, talks about the passion tax the extent to which when you're passionate about something, your company taxes you. That is, they feel like they don't have to pay you as much to do it. They can take advantage of your extra hours that you're going to put in. Mm. Well, if you are in the lead to say you are in control or maybe we'll take away the word control, you are being thoughtful mindset of how can I be able to achieve my passions and get the kind of resources that I need. We don't have to have the passion tax. And to your point, the more passionate we are about things that we do, the more energetic we are, the more effective we are, the more creative we are, and the resources that we need will follow there. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, if I'm being too harsh, let me know here. But when, I, when I'm looking at Django's question, um, I feel he doesn't have enough leverage, which to me says he doesn't, he doesn't care enough. Uh, to find a sol the solution that he wants. And when I was doing mentoring a few years back, I always gave this example of like someone who, you know, husband, uh, he's providing for his wife and his kids. He's got no time to do anything. You know, he he's, he's doesn't have that extra two hours a day to do whatever he wants to do uh, and work on his passion project, make a little extra money, whatever it is. But then all of a sudden, one of his kids has something, you know, God forbid, happened to their kidneys where like they need dialysis every single day. And he's got to take them every single day. Well, now he's got, now he cares enough. Mm. And now he's got the emotional leverage to say no to whatever he's been saying yes to every single day. He can, he's going to find two hours that he can now say no to mm -hmm. and get his kid the help that he deserves. So, you know, unfortunately, um, sometimes it takes these near death experiences for us to like really shift our context, right. but it doesn't have to. Right. It, wake, it wakes us up. Yeah, ex exactly. So, Django, I would just, I would, I would, I would challenge you to really um, try to find that that leverage of like, how can you do the, how can you get the both and? It does not have to be this either or. And you know, when Josh and I first started the Minimalists, I mean, I was, you know, working sixty, seventy, sometimes eighty hours a week. Uh, we were writing for the blog, and I was finishing up my uh, my degree, mm. and. Um, I, I knew it wasn't sustainable because it was so much work going on, but I knew the work that I was putting into it, um, it, it was worth it. And uh, I knew that I could sustain it for at least a year or two years. Um, and, you know, fast forward, like here we are now, but in order for me to get here, I did have to kind of say no to a lot of things. So like I had to say no to the nice home that I had. I had to say no to the nice car that I had. I'm like, okay, if I'm going to like, get out of this corporate job. And if I'm going to do this, uh, if, if I'm going to do this thing with the minimalist and, and write, um, I'm going to have to really free up some resources. So, you know, I went from, you know, having to make over six figures a year to like living off of like 12,000 bucks a year. Mm -hmm. And, um, it wasn't easy. It wasn't, it wasn't comfortable, mm -hmm. but 
I had enough emotional leverage to be like, I got to make a change. And um, I was able to make it work. So Django, I, I feel very confident that you can make this work. 100%. You know, um, part of what I think you're recommending to Django, we talk about it as tightrope walking, which is, again, that both anding doesn't mean that there's this perfect solution at every moment. It means that instead of finding the perfect balance, you're, you're balancing over time. Mm. So in, in your example, there's some moments where you're focused a little bit more on or a little bit less on the money and a little bit more on the opportunities that you're going to create. And that's going to shift over time. And it's about balancing over time like a tightrope walker. They're mm. never fully balanced. They're always balancing to get and move forward. I love that example. Yeah, because like you see someone tightrope walk, walking, and you're like, oh, they're just like perfectly still moving forward. But no, they're constantly going a little left, a little right, a little left, a little right. Yeah. One of our readers said to us, you know, even standing, we think we are balanced, but we're constantly making these micro shifts almost uh, subconsciously along yeah. the way. Yeah, We're going to check in with our live stream in a moment. But first, Ryan, what time is it? You know what time it is. It's time for the lightning round where we answer your text messages. You can text your questions and your comments to 937-202-4654. Yes, indeed. Now, during the lightning round, Wendy, this is where we and our guests, we answer questions with a short, shareable, less than 140 character response. We put the text to these minimal maxims in the show notes so you can copy and share our pithy answers on social media. You can find all of those minimal maxims over at theminimalists.com slash podcast right there in the show notes. But really, you can maunder on a bit. Professor Sean puts a minute on the clock for each of us and allows us to pontificate our, our pithy answer a little bit. We have a question today from Becky. My mother-in-law and I have a strained relationship, but I know she is important to my son and my husband. How do you manage a difficult relationship with someone you can't cut out of your life? You can throw 60 seconds on the clock for me, Prof. Sean. You know, TK was supposed to be here today, but he has the great Siberian itch. <laughs> I don't know. I it's don't a, know what that is. It's an Alan Wattsism. <laughs> So, but he did give us a pithy answer. I wanted to use his. I'm going to steal his for a second, then I'll give you mine. You can let something go without throwing it away. Mm -hmm. I would say the opposite is also true. You can throw something away and you haven't let it go in your heart. Mm -hmm. And the same is true with a relationship or an expectation or a demand of someone else. I need you to be this way. Mm -hmm. It's possible with our things to let it go, but still be holding on to it, cling to it. Or with our things, they can add value to our lives. They can be nice. I can have them around me, but I have let them go in the sense that I don't need them to live a fulfilled life. Here's one other thing I'll say to you. The closer you are to someone, the greater the chaos. Mm -hmm. I wish oh. I had more on time to unpack that, was that one. Perfect. That was right nice. at a minute. That was like to the microsecond. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, Mahala, give me 60 seconds. Uh, here's my here's my pithy answer. Uh, compassion con conceives connection, or you could say compassion creates connection. Um, whatever version of alliteration you like, but here's the thing is you don't have to agree with someone, you don't have to uh, necessarily support someone or help someone or uh, radically accept them to show them compassion. You can show compassion at any time. And that, I feel like that is the default emotion or the default action that will always at least help a situation not escalate. So for me, when I'm around family, when I'm around friends, if things start to escalate, I start to get a little annoyed. I hold my context of how can I show these people compassion in the moment? 
And that will always, I think that's always the right answer. Mm. Wendy, before we throw some time on the clock for you, (laughs) Becky's struggling here because there's an either or thing. And uh, it's making that room for the compassion is is important. Understanding the closer we get to someone, there is going to be some sort of chaos, right? I think that's inevitable. Mm-hmm. What do you have to say to, to Becky and, and her struggle here? It's a version, Ryan, of what you said. Uh, and we don't need to agree, judge. We need to understand and respect. Mm. And I would start with just listen. So there might be a whole bunch of reasons that there's tension with your mother-in-law. I can imagine exactly many of those. And great relationships are founded on trust, respect. The way to get to that trust and respect is to just listen mm. to what we all want in the world is people to listen to us. They don't agree with us, but to listen, to honor us, just Listen, I have a colleague in uh, Pennsylvania, Sharon Browning, who talks about just listening. Listening is an act of justice. How can you start out by creating more honor, respect, dignity in that relationship by listening? Oh, I love that. And she did it within a minute. How beautiful. That's awesome. Yeah, it's almost (laughs) like listening is an act of compassion in a way, too. Yes. Yeah. Well, let's check in real quick with our Patreon live stream. Every Tuesday at 10 a.m., we check in with our video private podcast subscribers and they ask us some questions and comment and they interact with each other as well. You can find that at patreon.com slash The Minimalist. Alabama, what do you got for us? I have a question here from Kate. She says, I have a paradox. I know I want to leave the job I have, but I don't. I'm conflicted internally about what I want to do next, but it's been two years now. Any thoughts? Wendy, is this a paradox of comfort in a way? Because once upon a time, I was talking to Danny Unknown about this this weekend. Ryan and I, when we were in the corporate world, it's not that I hated my job. I wanted to get out of here right away. It's like, oh, this is pretty comfortable. I'm pretty good at this. I'm pretty skilled at it. Mm. I am competent. By the way, I'm getting these little food pellets of nutrition from the universe. Uh, they're they're telling me I'm special. I'm unique. I'm, mm. uh, I am who I am. In fact, when we meet someone, what do we say? Uh, what do you do? And I had an impressive answer to mm. what do you do? I'm mm. the director of operations for 150 retail stores. And I didn't really care about that, but I cared so much about what other people thought of me. I'm an Enneagram three. Yes. And so that that makes a lot of sense when people, I need to put on the mask to impress other people. I mean, right? you still have a great answer to that question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what do you do? I tie my shoes really quickly. Right. Uh, which I would have really impressed my seven-year-old self. I was yeah. still doing Velcro at I'm seven. I'm impressed. <laughs> but comfort was the problem. My life was sort of a, a six out of 10 and we're afraid of losing that comfort and therefore not ever experiencing the real discomfort that encourages us to make the change that may be more beneficial, more rewarding for us in a not-too-distant future. This is the rabbit hole. This is the vicious cycle that we get when we emphasize one piece of something and don't let ourselves see the alternative. So we've emphasized, and it's exactly all the reasons you just said. We emphasize our expertise. We continue to rely on our expertise. We continue to rely on our identities. We continue, it becomes inertia. And all of a sudden our expertise, the great things that it was offering us become shackle us instead of enable us. Mm. And that's when we start falling down that rabbit hole. We get stuck 
until we can't get out. Mm. And until we get into these really tragic situations or really difficult situations that force us out because we have no alternative but to, you know, that that's the only alternative. And so that's the vicious cycle of the rabbit hole. The question is, how do we not go down the rabbit hole in the first place? Mm. There's some great research, Eric Dane, of competence traps. Our competencies, our expertise as individuals, you know, the if everything is a hand, if everything everything, if I have a hammer, everything is a nail. Mm. We get stuck and we can't see the other possibilities. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, this question really resonates with me because, you know, Josh and I were both at that point where we were kind of at a boiling point. We had to like get out. And I really wish I would have, and I did to an extent. I mean, I got laid off. Um, but about a year before I got laid off, I started simplifying and paying down debt and really kind of preparing to leave my job. Now, nothing could have prepared me for being laid off when I was, but at least I started doing something because when I did get laid off, I was like, oh, okay, like I was going to leave anyway. I mean, now I'm just kind of forced out of it. Um, But, you know, I guess, and I don't have an answer to this, but I I do hate to see when people are kind of in this situation, you know, know, they said they've been uh, two years with this mindset. And if you let it go another two years, it's going to be 10 times worse. The feeling's going to be 10 times worse. Um, So yeah, I mean, it's maybe it's a, a matter of like, altering kind of the way that you're perceiving this job. But um, I don't, again, I don't have an answer to this, but like, I, I just, I don't want to see it get to a boiling point for the person who asked this question. Here's something else we find in the work that we do and the workshops that we do and when we, is that when we invite people, so the both and here is how do you take advantage of all your experience, all your expertise, all the things that you've built up and try something new mm. and experiment and be creative. How do you deal with that? Mm. What we find in the workshops that we do is that it is so much harder to find our own both ands and so much easier to find other people's both ands. And so in our workshops, we invite people to think about their own tensions, their own dilemmas, then think about something else more create somebody else's both and they can totally easily do that and then we invite them back to their own mm. but instead of inviting them back to their own and having them come up with their own solutions we say pair and share tell somebody else next to you and have them be open to what they have to say and the aha here is getting out of our own heads and whether that's a paid professional therapist or a best friend or an accountability partner or somebody else who you trust to explore your both and and who you're not going to reject and defend against, that's an opportunity to help you think about new possibilities. Yeah. You know, the one thing that held me back from leaving the job was money, right? Like we have to pay our bills. Yeah. And for me, I was living paycheck to paycheck. In fact, I was living in a deficit each month. Like no matter what my paycheck was, like I was spending more um, on credit cards than what I was making. And what, uh, what I did is I changed those habits and then I saved up about, I got to about three months of savings and then I got laid off. And I'm like, oh no, like I was hoping to get six months so I could have six months to kind of figure things out, try new things. Um, But because I was forced into it, I'm like, okay, if I sell my car right now, if I move out of my house right now and rent it out, and if I, if I go to this smaller apartment um, and get get rid of my car payment, I can make that three months, six months. So um, that's just one little ingredient that I used. And I hope that I hope that resonates with you somehow, but I'm I'm sure money is like one of the biggest things holding back this person from quitting. And Ryan, I'll just say quickly, the money is partially the reality of the money and it's also the fear, the emotions. And navigating these tensions, we talk about four buckets of things that have to happen all together in a system. And two of those are changing our mindsets, as we said earlier, our head, but also noticing our emotions, the head and the heart, they both have to be aligned or we have to attend to both of them. It's a great point. 
Ladies and gentlemen, Wendy Smith. Yes. 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 Thank you, Wendy. I want to encourage you to check out the book. It's called Both and Thinking. I'll hold it up if you're watching the video version of the podcast. Ryan and I got a lot more to talk about. We're going to do a little house tour. I got this article about retail therapy and how it's really increasing lately post-pandemic. Mm. We'll, we'll talk about that. We've got some other simple living segments as well. But first, Malabama, what do you got for us? Here are some voicemail comments and insights from our listeners. Hey, Josh and Ryan. My name is Jenny, and I'm calling from Sheboygan, Wisconsin, with two useful tips. We have a local service called Waste Not LLC, and it's a compost service. What they do is they give you a bucket that you can fill up with compostable items, and once a week, they come and pick it up right from your doorstep, and they compost it while working with local farms. Our family loves to collect compostable items. Our kids are even involved with it too, and we've explained the process and how composting helps our planet with our two young kids. So this is a great service that they do. They work for you for a small cost, and you actually get to assist with local farms. My second tip is for baby care. It's an organization that is within our local food bank here in Sheboygan. And I know that there are other organizations such as this in other cities. What they do is they collect all baby items, anything from formula to clothes, diapers, any baby related items, and they give it to families that are in need. Instead of keeping clothes that no longer fit our kids or diapers that they have grown out of or just any other thing, related to kids, we have chosen to donate them and we see it as helping other kids in our community. So rather than them collecting dust on a shelf or in a container, we see them as an opportunity to help others in need. Hi everyone, I'm Martin. I'm Portuguese but living in London. Um, I was listening to the loneliness um, epidemic episode and um, I felt like, okay, I'm not the only crazy uh, person. <laughs> not that I thought I was, but um, during uh, my wedding day, people were just coming to me saying, oh, how how we expected you both to, to remain together. It was so obvious. And when I was um, doing my speech, I think everyone was caught by surprise because I said, you know what, thank you for coming to me with this kind words but you are all wrong I wake up every single day and I decide to remain next to this person there are times where I don't want to there are times that it is difficult there are times that it's boring I just decide to continue loving this person and I decide to communicate it and to to stay here where we are in our relationship so um I think that's very interesting. Love is definitely not a Hollywood movie. And I'm so glad it isn't. Um, it is about a choice, deciding. Um, obviously not deciding to remain, for example, in a very abusive relationship, but just decided to not um, give up on when things become a little bit less interesting because that also happened. Ryan, we're going to talk some more about less before we get into our simple living segments. I got an cool. article for you. Before we do that, Danny, 
Get the TikTok machine ready. <laughs> I have a public service announcement. This is for our Patreon subscribers, or if you're thinking about subscribing to our private podcast, The Minimalist Private Podcast, every Monday is two to three hours. You get much more of less. And people are always like, well, how can I listen to a private podcast? I don't want to just download Patreon and look at my web. No, no, no. Whatever podcast app you use, say it's Apple Podcasts or Acast or Google Podcasts, you can listen via the private RSS link that we give you. So if you really enjoy listening on Overcast on your iPhone, great. You can listen to the Minimalist Private Podcast from your favorite podcast app. Or if you prefer, you can download the Patreon app as well. That's the second way to listen. So a lot of people have a great user experience with the Patreon app. You can download the Patreon app right there to your phone, listen to the private podcast that way, change the speed. You can also watch the video version right there on your Patreon app. Or if you do just want to pull up your computer, you're at work and you want to listen or watch on your browser, you can do that on Chrome or whatever Safari. What are kids using these days? Internet Explorer, Netscape? I think Definitely uh, not Blackberry that. Messenger. Oh my. <laughs> <laughs> coming soon <laughs> patreon.com slash the minimalists you can listen on your favorite podcast app today let's talk some more about less ryan so what do you got for us got an article here our book agent mark sent this to me weird flex but all right and he said man you guys are needed more than ever this is an article from the los angeles times Strangely, the only newspaper in America that hasn't featured the minimalists. I wonder why. Weird. Because they have articles like this. How? Uh, yeah. This is what it's called. I need to go to therapy soon. And by therapy, I mean Target. Roaming the aisles of self-care. Oh, my goodness. This is by Marissa Gerber, staff writer. Written September 23rd, 2022. This isn't satire. No, it's no. not. Okay. It's, uh, it's reporting on a sad phenomenon. On days she felt particularly stressed, Shamita Jayakumar knows the quickest way to ease her mind. Quote, I'll just go to Target and wander the aisle, she says. So soothing. Every other week or so, the 32-year-old tech worker drives to the sprawling location off Jefferson Boulevard in Culver City and zigzags through the cleaning, camping, cooking, book and beauty aisles. She browses for an hour or two, although it's hard to say exactly how long because time feels like it stops. Sometimes she leaves with only a few items. But more often than not, she walks in with a list of two or three things and walks out with $200 of merchandise. Wow. It clearly says something about the commodification of self-care, she acknowledges. But it's about more than that, too. It's that the store is big and bright and air-conditioned, and she can zone out and wander in a way she wouldn't feel safe doing at a park. Wow. Hmm. It's that layout here in Culver City. It looks, en it looks enough like one back home in Silicon Valley that she flashes back to Target runs with her mom in the 90s hmm. and that there are people around you, but no pressure to talk to them. Hmm. My own self-care day, she calls it. We'll put a link to this in the show notes. But Ryan, I'm trying to find the compassionate approach here instead of the judgy approach. 
Well, we I can, can get find there, com- but it's like my reaction is to be like two hundred dollars. Like, first off, that's a crazy privilege to just be able to go whenever you want, spend two hundred bucks at Target. But if you have that expendable income, um, or fortunate, you know, whatever you want to look at it, um, you could take an Uber out to out of LA and get to a park where maybe you do feel comfortable. I get the Culver. I haven't been to parks in Culver City, but I know. Um, I have, and they're great. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah, because well, I have been to parks in LA where you're like, oh, this is not, this is potentially not safe, or like you can't let your guard down at least. Sure, but I've also seen video footage in a Target of of people, you know, it's hurting other people yeah. in the actual Target itself with yeah. a knife or uh, some other weapon, and and so what I I'm realized, telling you, he started it. <laughs> 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 no, you're right. You're right. Like you, you, you have the potential for being harmed, regardless of where you're at. He I refused mean. to return my four year old air fryer. <laughs> <laughs> but here's so I think we're talking about a bigger problem here, and it, this is purported self care, so called mm. self care. Mm-hmm. We have commodified, as the article points out, self care, and we've. We now pretend as though taking $200 to go to Target and buy a bunch of things that are now going to haunt us for the next few weeks, months, or years. They pile up in our houses. And the one thing that I've realized recently as we have very slowly populated our new home with new things is, and this is something I had to tell Ella yesterday, she comes up to me and she was like, I just love stuff. <laughs> I said, no, you don't. No, you oh, don't. Man. You're fired. <laughs> you can't fire me. <laughs> what, what she said to me is like, my room feels empty if I don't have anything in it. Mm. And I said, okay. And she's like, but I don't want it to be empty. I said, well, maybe it's not empty. Maybe it's spacious. I said, do you enjoy playing? She's like, yeah. I said, do you need extra space to play? Like, oh, yeah. And that reframing was important because she was getting really upset yesterday because after you left our house, Ryan, she couldn't find her stress ball. Mm. Not that she needs, she's nine years old. Man, I stressed her out that much, huh? About (laughs) about Nicodemus. (laughs) (laughs) And she was. Uh, We had a blast. That was a lot of fun. She was frustrated because she couldn't find it. And my point to her was when you have too many things, sometimes it's difficult to find the things we actually want to use. Mm. And she says, but I play with all of my things. And I said, do you really? I said, let's go in your room. And if you play with them, great. I said, what about this? Do you play with that? No, not really. What about this? Nah, not really. What about this? Oh, yeah. I forgot I even owned it. Oh, so you don't actually play with it because these other things are in the way. And so how do I tie this back to the article here? And this woman, and by the way, there's several other accounts of different people who are shopping, retail therapizing their lives and not knowing that they are creating a burden. Imagine if you went to therapy regularly, but instead of them giving you an ear to listen, they just started handing you tchotchkes and bags of goodies. Yeah. You'd be like, well, wait a minute. This isn't what I came here for, actually. I came here for a deeper understanding. But what's happening with retail therapy is it's a pacification of sorts. I'm so stressed out. I'm so overwhelmed. I need a sense of familiarity. In fact, in the article, she was talking about 
I need that nostalgia from my childhood. Mm. And wow. Yeah. And so I need to reconnect with my mother and my, with my childhood. Well, I can assure you the best way to do that is not through shopping. So this article, there wasn't no, like it wasn't presenting this as a problem. It was presenting it as like, here's what I do for self-care. It was presenting it as here is a case study of a person or a group of people mm. who are doing this. So it wasn't judgmental. It wasn't saying you should do this or you shouldn't do this. Right. It was showing a potential problem where we are now, as you illustrated, Ryan, spending $200 to essentially roam the aisles. And, and I think that's the cost of admission that you could go into any museum for way less than that. Many museums yeah. are free, but there are so many things you could do for $200 that are so much better than walking the aisles of Target and worse, leaving with a bunch of things that are actually going to get in the way of your joy a week from now, a month from now, a year from now. I wonder how much Target paid <laughs> for this for this article Ooh, in the yeah. LA Times. Yeah, product placement. That's certainly mm, quite yeah. possible. Okay, so here's the compassionate approach. Um, we all need to have some type of self routine, self care routine in our lives. We have to, we have to have some kind of mechanism to take time to ourselves, to release, to meditate, to ruminate, to have a little introspection, uh, maybe even to check out. I, I get that. Um, so there is no judgment on the self care part. There's no, uh, there's no judgment at all on any of this. It's yeah. really about like, what does that routine look like? And I would just posit that retail therapy, may, maybe it does work. Clearly, this article is showing how it works for some people. Yeah, I don't think but, it's showing that either, though, Ryan. That's not clear. What, well, that's, what, well, okay, so that, that's the argument that it's presenting. I don't but, think it is, though. Okay, let me, let's move past this, though. Okay. Um, what I'm trying to say is, is that regardless of what this article is saying about uh, retail therapy, um, to spend $200 on retail therapy, you could actually go get real therapy for less than $200. Mm. And to me, the article was saying it wasn't about fixing something. It was about checking out. It mm. was about es escapism. And um, there's, some, again, nothing wrong with escapism. Um, I would just say that you could, you could have some escapism in your life for way less than 200 bucks. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, when you feel compelled to escape... What are you escaping from? Yeah. And maybe if we step back and realize like, oh, I'm, I'm escaping from what is the actual problem. Escapism is a Band-Aid quite often. Mm. Nothing wrong with a Band-Aid, right? But if we think that the Band-Aid is going to heal the axe wound, well, then we're in for a world of pain and suffering mm -hmm. in, in the future. Mm -hmm. mm. Let's, let's do some talkaboutables. Little segment we do where we talk about something that's going on. And Danny came up to my house this weekend. He was shooting some photos for my wife's podcast, How to Love. Mm -hmm. uh, she just started a TikTok account, H2L Pod, if you want to get some relationship insights on, on TikTok, by the way. It's just the H2L Pod. In fact, uh, Podcast Sean, put a link to that in the show notes. But he came up to do some photos and then we had him stay in our guest house, which is 57% of the time my house. Yes. I sleep there four nights a week. So <laughs> right. I, that, that's the thing we figured out works well for me. I sleep there four nights and I, I uh, sleep with Bex 
literally and figuratively, um, yeah, like three nights a week. I was uh, when I was over at your place hanging out with uh, Bex and Ella uh, yesterday. Um, his Josh no longer likes to hang out with anyone except Danny, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> I was just there for photo support. That's right. Uh, no, um, I know you're, uh, Josh was having a bit of a headache, so he wasn't hanging out too much. But anyway, um, I was telling Bex about, I was like, did you listen to the live stream where I was giving Josh a hard time about how Josh, ha- he always talks about his place and then he always talks about our place, mm-hmm. but he never talks about your place. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, but she was like, but she said the same thing you said. She was like, well, pretty much this is my place. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's the, if you look, and by the way, we're going to get to a, a home tour segment here in a little bit. If you look at the decor there, you can tell which place is hers and which place is mine. Sure. You were actually in the guest house with me the other day and mm-hmm. uh, Danny was there. He and Amy came out and stayed. And I, I here's what I want to do just for fun. I want to have Danny unknown Yelp review my guest house. <laughs> How many stars do you give it, Danny? And um, and also, what would your review say about it? I'd say 4.5 stars <laughs> out of 5. Okay. Um, I'll start I'll start with the uh, with the, the why it's missing half a star. <laughs> the only thing is that there's no shades at all, so it's completely clear. Uh-huh. And you did show me a hack on you can get some more privacy by opening up the closet to block out the front. Right. But um, in the shower, I'm like washing my hair, and then I'm like, whoa, I can see straight into the kitchen of the other house. <laughs> like, well, if I could see that, they could see me. And was I was Josh staring right back at he you. Was right, dude. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I literally, I was washing off my body. He said, you missed a spot. <laughs> you need some help in there, Danny? <laughs> but no. So so to continue the review, mm. it's an outstanding space that is an atmosphere of you get to live, you get to do these things today rather than wake up and you see so much you might have to manage or maintain. Mm. But it's rather you're up. I mean, it's just, it's so calming waking up and seeing nothing, but it was foggy the two days we were there. Seeing the fog and then saying, huh, I, coffee's right there. There's nothing I have to hurdle, step. And, and my place isn't even, like our personal spot isn't even cluttered like that. But it being super simple, I mean, this is the minimalist home, right? This is the minimalist <laughs> home. Um, but for it to be a space where you can just wake up and be rather than you have to wake up and then become, I think was very, I don't know, it, it inspired Amy and I even to in leaving that space. We're like, well, this energy, something's here. Mm. So let's try to make this in our house. You know, I will eventually, we'll, we'll just do like a quick photo tour. I mean, it's one photo. We'll take care of the whole space. I don't mm-hmm. know. How big do you think the space is? 200 square feet, roughly? Yeah. And... Yeah. Uh, that's where I spend you know, 50 plus percent of my time. And there's just a little table in there, a chair, a nightstand and a bed. And of course, there's like a little kitchenette that has everything you need, a fridge and, and you know, a few cabinets and a closet and a bathroom. And, and so like, as I say it, it sounds expansive, but there's not a whole lot there. There's a whole lot of, sp- there's even a lot of space, even though it's really tiny. Jordan sent me a video yesterday of some architectural tour of a 300 square foot cabin in the middle of uh, nowhere, Australia. And it was stunning. And what's stunning about it is 
the intentionality of the space. And mm. if we can be intentional with our space, you'll get at least 4.5 stars, apparently. That's now, right. We could treat this like Airbnb, Ryan. So you, you rent out an Airbnb from time to time. Mm -hmm. And... You also get to rate the guests that stay with you. <laughs> All right, so give us the give us the Airbnb guest rating. Oh, although I just heard the dinger, so maybe we don't have time to mm. rate Danny. You but, know what? Give uh, us another sixty seconds, Mahalik. Yeah, All right, here. here we go. Here we go. Five stars. They're awesome. <laughs> so thankful. Thank you again. See for how that works. Crash. See Danny. See how that works. Just real easy. <laughs> Hey man, I'm gonna be honest. I'm just kidding, man. I'm kidding. No, Angel, if you're it. listening to this, we're gonna be docking his pay for a week. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we wanna give him uh four point five stars worth of pay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I appreciate having you out there because we had an opportunity to do a bunch of photos for the How to Love TikTok and uh Bex's podcast, How to Love, has really been this great metamorphosis. And we did some photos inside the actual main house, Bex's house, one might say. Uh, and um, still really simple, right? And that's, even though there are more things there, Bex owns more things than I own. Ryan, you were there yesterday. We still do our best to keep it simple. We have uh, a new rule, Ryan. Can hmm. I tell you about the once a month rule? <laughs> <laughs> yes, you absolutely can. I love how we just keep adding to the rule book. That's right. We're going to have to record uh, another audiobook. To be honest, these aren't rules. They are tools. Yes. And so the once a month rule, I have this on my calendar every month mm. where I just a little reminder, there's something I need to do monthly. So for example, my dentist a few years ago said, hey, you're replacing your toothbrush every month, right? I'm like, no, no, no. This one's from 1987. What are you talking about? <laughs> Don't listen to Big Tooth Toothbrush Corporate, Josh. <laughs> Big Tooth? Don't be duped Big by Big Tooth. <laughs> but what else do I do once a month? So I have this rule, and you, I'd be really interested. In fact, you know what? Let's make this, Jordan, let's make this a standout on YouTube. You can let us know in the comments, or if you're watching the private podcast on Patreon, let us know in the Patreon comments as well. I want to know what you do once a month. or What would you benefit from remembering to do once a month? So changing the air filter to our air conditioner. I used to do that every month where we lived before. Now ours is almost impossible to change. And it's a giant one. So mm. we actually have that set for every six months. But I used to change it out because we lived in Los Angeles before. Mm. Every month, I would pull that out. It was super dirty. So mm. I would change that, right? The first of each month. I would um, I charge our safe. We have a, a safe at our home where we keep all of our... Um, um, what do we keep in our safe? Important documents. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah. Uh, also, we also charge our toys once a month. You can mm -hmm. take that however you'd like. Maybe it's Ella's toys. Maybe it's Bex's and my toys. <laughs> we did have one box when we were moving. It said adult toys on it. And Ella was like, oh, and she just read the word toys. She's like, I have more toys. No, Ella, those no, are no, not no, no, no. for you. <laughs> oh, here's the other thing I do. I refill the soap in every bathroom, even if it's not empty. So I'll go to the kitchen, I'll go to the guest bathroom, I'll go to the master bath, and I will fill up the soap dispensers on the first of each month. That way, the 11th doesn't roll by and all of a sudden it's been several months and I'm like, oh, this stupid thing is empty. We never have an empty soap dispenser as a result. Oh, um, also on the first of the month, 
I will check expiration dates. You and I did a whole podcast episode about mm. expired things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And in that podcast, we talked about many of the things that we don't even know are expired, like physical goods, like maybe the clothes that I don't wear anymore. Maybe those have expired in my life. Or maybe we even have expired relationships. Mm. But to get more literal, we go to our fridge and to our medicine cabinet. And on the first of the month, we say, okay, oh man, these pickles have expired. Or this milk has expired. Or this medication, this aspirin has expired. Let's go ahead and get rid of it. And by get rid of it, we give it to Ryan because he takes all the expired yes, things. Yes, I, like I like to live life on the edge. <laughs> <laughs> so what else uh, do you have that you would need a reminder once a month? A, a once a month reminder would be helpful. Let us know in the comments. What about you, Alabama or Ryan? Do you have anything that stands out to you? Oh, uh... I do. While you have time yeah, to think, I have definitely picked up the toothbrush and soap refilling habit from you. It has made my life so much easier because mm. I hate when things run out. Um, here in the studio, I actually have a schedule where uh, every month I charge our ring security camera. So that's part of my routine is like the first podcast of every month. Mm. Um, it's also same thing for spraying with bugs. There's a lot of bugs in Los Angeles and Mallory does not like bugs. So that is something that has given me a great ease of mind of just having, you know, uh, something that is organic and very natural as far as repellents. A lot of like citrusy kind of smells, mints and um, lavenders most bugs don't like. It keeps the termites away. Yes. And it smells lovely for most people. Mm. Yes. <laughs> uh, my contacts. I got to change those out once a month. And I learned that the hard way. And it's funny because Mariah, she used to work at like an ear, nose and throat. Ear, eye, nose and throat. In yeah. Anyway. E yeah. ENT. And uh, she would always get on me about not changing my contacts because oh. I would just leave them in until you know, they started to get a little blurry oh. or like, you know, like until they weren't, until I could not use them. And she was like, I'm telling you, you're going to get an eye infection. Yeah. I'm like, ah, whatever. And eventually got an eye infection. <laughs> well, that's so the, now I change my contacts once a month to avoid getting eye infections. Well, that's good. Yeah, that is the once a month rule. We have 16 other rules for living with less. You can find them at theminimalists.com. You just click on the resources page there. The bunch of free resources you can download, like the 30 day minimalism game calendar, the free ebook, 15 ways to write better, and of course, the minimalist rule book, 16 ways. To, or 16 rules for living with less. You know what, Ryan? We're going to skip TK's tweet of the week this week because TK, TK's gone. May he rest in peace. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously, he's at home getting rest because he's under the weather yes, a little bit. Dead. Yeah, why are you guys bothering? Yeah. <laughs> Let him rest Why did you have peace? to word it that way? <laughs> <laughs> what is wrong with you? <laughs> I, I do want to move on to obsolete objects, though. So... We've decided to merge our amass it or trash it and our obsolete objects segment for two reasons. One is our patrons just didn't seem to care for the amass it or trash it segment. They said it was too specific, but they all were commenting how much they love the obsolete objects segment. And because I recognize they were fairly similar, mm. we have an obsolete object in question today. If you look at on the screen here, Jordan's going to put it up. If you're watching the live screen, by the, by, but the live stream, he also found a way, I think, to float it into Oh, yeah. there it is, right there on the frame. Oh, That's all those colors. Yeah, you can see it. So those this, are gorgeous. This Aren't is something they? called 
fiesta wear. And Janelle sent this in. Alabama, what did Janelle have to say about her fiesta wear? Oh, my goodness. Janelle, I'm so glad you reached out because I thought I was one of the few people with this problem. Are either of you familiar with fiesta wear? Had you heard about it before this? The fiesta wear, isn't that the stuff you can you can basically put a plate in the oven, right? Like it's really yes, like durable. It's, yeah. it's very durable. It's yeah. oven safe. It is the Pretty most... Pricey. Yes, because it's the most collected dinnerware in like the history mm. of the tabletop industry. Mm. They have sold... Oh, gosh, like at least I think they produce at least half a billion um, different plates, bowls, cups, etc. By now, they've been going for uh, like it's like Hamill and Laughlin. They're they're very, very popular, especially in the South where where I grew up. I grew up seeing them everywhere. You saw them new in department stores. You saw them in thrift stores, people selling them secondhand at still pretty solid values. Mm -hmm. For Janelle, her situation was she got married Mm -hmm. and these were given to her Mm. by her new husband's family. Mm -hmm. And I had something similar happen to me. And she went, this is not really the aesthetic I was going for with our new home, but Mm. he wants to be respectful and keep those. And I had the same thing from my grandma grandmother. Uh, so I, I I can personally relate to this. I, I completely know how you feel, Janelle. Yeah. So why, Ryan, why I called this an obsolete object is it not that it's obsolete for everyone. Some people get immense value from yeah. these yes. ugly dishes. But... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah. No, that's a that's a value judgment of me. But Most what I'm definitely. really saying is not that they're, they're not inherently ugly. Yeah, they are. Pers- from my perspective, I just don't enjoy that particular aesthetic. Yeah. Now, someone else might come to my house. We'll do the home tour photo here in a bit, and someone might come to my house and say, "Oh my God, this is boring, or this is bland, or this is ugly." Mm-hmm. That is their point of view. The truth is, they don't have to live there. The problem that Janelle is running into is what? Oh my gosh, I don't want these, but I feel compelled to keep them. In mm. fact, not only do I feel compelled by the family, but by her husband yes. as well. And so there's a, a guilt tripping in a way that may be going on, or he may not even be, he's probably not guilt tripping her, mm. but she puts that on herself. She sees not just the family's expectations, but she sees her husband's expectations. She may be inventing those expectations. Mm. But the truth is, these things are clutter because yeah. what? They're getting in the way yeah, for her. She's not using them. Well, it's interesting because Mariah and I, we've had, we have like, um, we bought a set of dishes all mismatched. Um, it would drive you crazy. You, you've probably seen them. Yeah. Um, we have, we have slowly <laughs> got down to like three plates because Mariah and I, we love to break things. I mean, it's our passion. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, long story short, for me, like if someone gifted me fiesta wear, I'd be like, oh, th-. and then I could finally like replace the, the the crappy cracked, you know, plates and stuff that we have. So, uh, you know, it's like, yeah, it's, it's what are you doing with it? I mean, yeah. these are obviously in the boxes not being used. Yeah, get rid of it. Like, yeah, give them to Ryan. Honestly, Janelle. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah give Janelle, you give it to me. I will 100% use them. Uh, but no, don't send me your plates, please. Um, <laughs> But uh, but yeah, I mean, long story short, it's it's like, yeah, w- what are those doing for you? For me, if someone gifted them to me, like, yeah, I would find a use for them because Mariah and I have been putting this off um, for months because I don't want to go shopping and look at plates. Mm-hmm. And when I do, I'm just like, we'll get one of everything. And as long as it's functional, like that's all I care about, you yes. know? Um, but yeah, it sounds like for um, Janelle here, yeah, you might want to find a new home for him. Here's the thing. When someone gives you a gift, Janelle... They, they want to add value to your life. Mm-hmm. They want to support you. They want to do something for you, uh, ultimately because they want you to be happy. But if this gift is getting in the way of your happiness or getting in the way of your peace, then you're kind of doing them a disservice because uh, 
they want you to be peaceful. They want you to be happy. If you're holding on to them and it's getting in the way of that, then um, the opposite is happening. And I'm sure that your family doesn't want you to, uh, they don't want to take away from your peace. Yeah. So mm. Janelle, here's here's what I do. And you can take whatever runs, you know, and makes sense to you for your situation. I have a set of four of a not loud color. That's what David and I, my husband, use in general. We have singles of three other colors that are not going to match whatsoever. We keep those in the boxes. We bust those out twice a year, once in the winter, once in the summer, when we have a larger gathering, usually 4th of July and Thanksgiving, because that's when we need enough plates for everybody. Once we get to the point where we're no longer needing that for hosting, we have permission to let them go. If it fits in the 90-90 rule, great. If it's a situation where your family or his family, rather, is coming over and expecting to see those plates and you feel that little bit of pressure, sure, I get that. Try it out. If it does not make you happy, you are at a great advantage because those are still in the box. That is mm. so much easier to turn around and sell for the people that do enjoy collecting these and that do enjoy seeing a myriad of colors in their cabinet. Mm. That That is what works for me and my husband. For us, we don't love the set we use, but if we find one that we go, oh, this is much better for our lifestyle, then we'll go with that. Otherwise, it's just functional. You know, it's funny. I intentionally mismatch things because it makes me uncomfortable. Mm. Like with my socks, the you know the the plaid or I think I got bananas on shoes. one on some socks. socks. It's like I intentionally <laughs> like if I'm folding socks and they happen to match, like I intentionally am like nope, not matching them because it makes me uncomfortable. And it's the same thing with um and Mariah's the same way. I mean, and this is why Mariah and I have completely mismatched ugly dishes uh-huh. because it is like this. It's this thing where I'm like why do I care how my dishes look? Like it doesn't, that doesn't disrupt my peace. It doesn't affect the flavor of the food. Right, exactly, exactly. Anyway, um, yeah. But the only thing I'll say, Malabama, to what your comment was, um, holding on to them just so you can show them when they come to your house, um, that seems disingenuous to me. Mm. But that's me. But that's my, that's my judgment. That's my thing. Yeah, no, it it is disingenuous. I mean, if we're just looking at what disingenuous means because mm. genuinely you don't want to hold on to them. Mm. And if genuinely you don't want to hold on to something, then why not just let it go? Yeah. yeah. Let's move on to advertisement suck, a little segment we do where we point out a sucky ad. If you're watching the video version of this, you'll get to see the video. But uh, we, if you're watching, if you're just listening to the audio version, don't worry, you'll hear it because this is like a radio commercial. And I will say this, Ryan, this is the most disappointing advertisement that I have ever witnessed. Mm, all right. Go ahead and okay. play it, Prof. Sean. <laughs> I love the old English. Call me when it's time to do damage When the quality ain't up to my standards That make rib falls below average Replaced by the country style Arby's rib sandwich Straight out the smokehouse Texas my old route Eight hours to slow cook Keep push for the rollout The boss with the smoky Q I really like Pusha T too style. Make rib get lost Yeah this doesn't compare to that replica rib patty. I'm screaming, how dare you? You know that I'm war ready. Always taking taste to the next level. 
Arby's is the choice we won't settle. McDonald's, what you selling? Mystery meat. That's that's the most well done worst ad I've ever seen. You ain't it in the streets. The real country style rib sandwich here to keep eat. Look, straight out the smokehouse. Country style Arby's rib sandwich, what you know about? We coming straight out the smokehouse. McRib, you just look like a clown, and that's with no doubt. This is a paid advertisement by Arby's. I mean, at least he was honest about it. He's like, this is a he's like, this is a paid advertisement. All right, let's talk about this. So Pusha T, one half of the clips, one of the greatest hip hop artists of all time. Mm. I remember back in 02, Danny, this is before your time, but like he had he song grinding came out. You remember grinding. Like it totally changed the trajectory of music. I mean, we're talking one of the top 10 hip hop songs, arguably, of all time. Mm. Right? Yeah. You remember this, Danny Grinder? Nothing. Oh, no. when he, he was like, he was like one year, one year old. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> one it, old. When he was like, don't TikTok this, Danny. He was like, from ghetto to ghetto, the backyard to yard. I sell it whip, done whipped. It's soft or hard. I'm the neighborhood pusher. Call me subwoofer. Cause mm-hmm. I pump bass like that, Jack. What do you, uh, he said, uh, man. I make a buck why scram. I'm trying to show y'all who the I am. The jewels is flirting. I'll be damned if I'm hurting. I'm a legend in two games like I'm Pee Wee Kirkland. Platinum on the block with consistent hits while Pharrell keeps talking this music shit. So like he was skirting the whole, the whole like, hey man, like I'm not trying to make money from all this music shit. Mm-hmm. And now he did the exact opposite of it, right? Yeah. When he, He's arguably the greatest diss artist of all time. And this is a McDonald's diss track. He's dissing McDonald's. Now, there's a backstory to that. He was partially responsible for writing the theme song for McDonald's. Really? I'm loving it. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so, um, for whatever reason, I guess he felt he wasn't properly compensated for that, even though he signed the contract for the thing. And so, now he's partnered up with Arby, so there's some sort of weird vendetta there. But the worst thing you could do is make a mediocre diss song about the McRib sandwich. Yeah. And like, I get it. It's better than any other diss song that anyone else could make for a fast food company. That's what I'm saying. Like, you could tell there was some creativity involved in this. But it, it was... It was the most it was the most creative worst advertisement I've ever seen. Right. Yeah, like it was still really bad. <laughs> it's because... It's the opposite of punk rock. Mm. And Pusha T in 2002 was punk rock. Mm. It was, hey, man, I'm not even trying to make money from this this music. I I don't care about that, man. Like, I'll make this, but like, I'm not, that's not the thing I'm going after from Mm. from this hip hop thing, right? And now all of a sudden he's saying what? Um, I'm willing to do a paid advertisement for this poison. Yeah. Uh, And it's... It's just incredibly frustrating because we're talking about if nothing ruins art like the commercialization of art. Mm-hmm. And this isn't just the fusion of commercial and art. It is stripping art of its artistry. There's this uh, great line that David Lipsky has in his book, although, of course, you end up becoming yourself. It's about David Foster Wallace. And he talks about how 
when David Foster Wallace committed suicide, that goes back and taints the entire life. Like there's something someone does, like commit suicide, mm-hmm. that taints everything they did before in some way, or right. at least infuses it with something, right? Yeah. And this is the same thing here. When you do the Arby's commercial, now I go back and look at Grinding, one of the my ten favorite hip hop songs of all time, and I say, Oh, this guy is gonna turn in to that guy and all of a sudden now I'm I mean this is gross to me and not just gross because I've gotten food poisoning twice from Arby's <laughs> but, it, but I've had f- food poisoning five times in my life 40% of the time I've had food poisoning it's from Arby's yeah and I'll tell you this it put a a layer of grossness over this back catalog of artistry there mm-hmm. you would never see Radiohead do this, right? Mm. You wouldn't see Jay-Z do this. You wouldn't see Kendrick Lamar certainly do this. And so when I see Pusha T do it, it makes me wonder like, oh, was it was it worth it? Yeah. I don't know, man. I'm trying to find the compassionate approach to this. And uh, it is what it is, man. I mean, even Radiohead to an extent. I mean, that song Creep, like he's not a creep anymore. Now he's very popular. It's not in commercials, though. He would no, not, no, it's yeah. no, it's not. I'm just saying that people's. I'm saying that people's uh, careers evolve, um, and they sell out. I mean, that's kind of what happens. And like he sold out, whatever. I mean, I'm not because he sold out doesn't mean that. Um, I don't know. I'm uh, like I would never sell out, but that you know, but that's me. Yeah. You know. Um, and who knows? I love to think that I'm bigger than that. I love to think that I would never sell out. And I could confidently say that, like, uh, right now in this moment, I can say I'll never sell out. But I mean... How much money do you think they gave him for that? I don't know. Well, let's say it was... High seven figures, I would think. Okay. So let's say it's you know, multi-million dollars. It's two, $2 million or more. That's a lot of money for a song, by the way. Yeah. So let's say they give him $2 million. Mm-hmm. You can say you wouldn't do it then. Here's why. Because we have refused ads on this podcast mm-hmm. for the last, what, six, seven years at this point. Mm-hmm. And with the number of listeners we have, you just look at the CPM, you can do the calculations. Yeah. We could be making millions, millions of dollars over, over the that. past six or seven years. Yeah. And there are some years with the number of listeners we have where we could make a million dollars with advertisements. That's true. Yeah. And we've refused that. Why? Because we think it's gross, not because we think... And By the way, I want to be clear. I don't think Pusha T is morally wrong for doing this. Mm-hmm. I'm just grossed out by it. It's unfortunate f- for you because it's like, it's someone who you really looked up to and really respected like what he did for that genre of music. And then to see him at this point, I could see where it's like, are you kidding? Like one of my role models is now slinging songs diss tracks for Arby's like that's I'm gonna diss the McRib <laughs> my god I mean I, I, I don't need uh, Pusha T to help me know that the McRib is crap <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a fair point yeah alright Danny what are you gonna say go for it I was just gonna say it's kind of a bummer because he within the last couple of years got really popular from dissing Drake mm-hmm. and really becoming like oh wow like this man makes a diss track. He's saying something. Yeah. And this is now him taking, or this is kind of that success turning into something gross now because yeah, yeah, like some of the stuff he said about Drake and the sun, like, yeah, maybe he crossed the line, but maybe not in hip hop. But now it's like, Hey, this diss track, the success you got from that 
is now just playing into you're kind of taking yourself down yeah. in the sense like your artistry mm-hmm. can create something really really dope mm-hmm. and impactful even in the sense of a rap beef with Drake and now you're literally just kind of using it to make a buck it's kind of a bummer totally it, it, yeah it is and again like like Josh you were saying it's not morally wrong it's just like we put our a judgment is but a mirror reflecting the insecurities of the person doing the judging. So it's yes. us putting ourselves in Pusha T's shoes and being like, oh, wow, like, yeah, maybe we get a nice big bag of money. But the emotion that we would get from that, how we would feel from doing that would just we would feel so icky. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just don't look up to him anymore. It's right. Just like I wouldn't it's look up to Tom York. I wouldn't look up to Kendrick yeah. if they did something like this as yeah. well. Yeah, hundred percent. No, it's yeah, it, it is unfortunate. It's kind of like, um, oh, I don't know, man. Like I used to look up to John McCain, like back in the day, because he was like a war hero, mm-hmm. and he stood up. Like he actually stood up for like anti-establishment, and then. You know, and then he fell in line with, and it was like this disappointment where I'm like, oh, like, yeah, like I don't sil- want my, I don't want my rock stars falling in line. Yeah, exactly. Mm, Let's yeah. move on to the Photo Friday home tour. If you subscribe to the video version of the podcast on Patreon, patreon.com slash the minimalists, we send you a photo every Friday of one of our homes. The one I have here today is the 12th item in this series. So you can go back and look at all the photos here. This one is called A New Path to Joy. Hey, we were just sitting out there yesterday. Yeah, so you can see Ella and Bex here. If you're just listening, I'll, I'll explain the photo to you. I will I will try to commentate the photo here. I was in our backyard recently, which we just redid our side yard backyard. That's all DG, which is a decomposed granite. Uh, it looks like dirt, but it's... Uh, you know, it's just we decided to do no grass uh, in our backyard or That's side so yard cool. just mm-hmm. because we didn't want to have to water all of it. Yeah. For two reasons. One is we had to put a sump pump under our house because there was a lot of moisture collecting. So we don't want to have. So we have all these drought resistant plants along the mm-hmm. path there as well. These different tiny little cactuses that will get much bigger. These agave plants there as well. We went and bought these $20 little pavers and put them in the yard also. And then we've got this back porch, which I checked, by the way, Ryan, and it is grounded. So we, if you sit out there, stand, or you're seated there oh, on nice. the back porch, you're constantly grounding. Oh, that's great. And uh, I just was walking through the backyard, and I saw Bex and Ella hanging out there on the back patio. This is where Bex and I have our morning coffee. This was uh, at sunset, though, so the sun is setting there in the west behind the home and uh, it was just this moment of joy that I experienced because it was a path. It was our new path that I got to see there because we pulled up all these old, ugly um, little pathway markers. They actually took the old driveway and turned it into this path, and it was hideous. And so we just decided, hey, let's put these little $20 concrete planters there. And then we put all of these plants. Um, I shouldn't say planters. These $20 little two foot by two foot concrete squares that make the path. And then we put these drought resistant plants that will grow over time. Mm-hmm. And it gives us the the perfect little path to, uh, to leave our house and also to come home. But the thing that I like most here has nothing to do with our house is 
one of the things I really enjoyed, and Danny, you probably saw this while you were staying there, is the reason we don't have any curtains or anything on our windows is you get to see all the greenery from all the neighbors. Mm. Like I get to see all the neighbors' palm trees and stuff that they planted, you know, 30 years ago. <laughs> and I get to take advantage of all this greenery. Have you, you've been to like a new development when they're building a new cul-de-sac neighborhood somewhere mm-hmm. and it's kind of, it feels eerie because there are no trees yet. All the trees are like one foot tall. Yeah, like whatever. little baby trees. Yeah. Yeah. And the whole neighborhood feels off. Right. Right. But our neighborhood is so green because it's been there since the 1800s. And so you have all of these oak trees and you have the palm trees. And so through every window is like nature's art. And over top of the house is nature's art as well. And so one of the things, one of the ways that we display art in our home is by having windows and having the greenery and often other people's greenery outside the home mm. really enlivens the interior of the home as well. Yeah. Do you know about the rebate that California's offering if you let your grass die? No. Yeah, you should look into it. Really? Yeah, because of the drought. They're based, I forget how much their the rebate is, but... Pro tip for your taxes, if you live in California. <laughs> Ryan's going to get like a little jar full of grass and let it die and right. sign up for a rebate. <laughs> I want my $67 <laughs> <laughs> so I can replace this grass. <laughs> uh, stay tuned for next week. We're going to do a little detour into the studio where we have a photo of something we call the out in the open rule. We, we just did this recently. I won't run it. Uh, But a little teaser there for you. We have a photo of us, um, well, dismantling our studio, I'll say, (laughs) for our Friday, Photo Friday Home Tour number 13 next week. You can check that out if you subscribe to the video version of the podcast. It'll end up right in your email inbox. Alabama, do we have any questions from our Patreon live stream? We sure do. Lindsay asks, I finally have peace in my life, intention, routine, what I have been searching for since starting my minimalist journey five years ago. Why am I still trying to search for living a minimalist life? Because Mm. you think that minimalism is a destination rather than a tool. Mm. If you are a carpenter, you don't search for a hammer after you have a hammer. You simply use that hammer when you need the hammer. Mm. When you have minimalism, you don't have to use it for everything, but it begins to inform many aspects of your life. Ryan and I were at a conference this week in Alabama came. Prof. Sean came to the conference, the Mosaic Conference, and one of the uh, speakers came up to me at one point. He said, we were just talking for a bit, just he was engaging in some small talk, and he said, so what do you do for fun? (laughs) Josh was like how dare you (laughs) I spit in his face (laughs) that's what I do for fun (laughs) no and so I I paused for a moment and I just got this big smile on my face and it gave him a big smile and I said man I don't really do anything for fun Mm -hmm. maybe the question for me is what do you do for peace or Mm. what do you avoid for peace. And so what minimalism allows us to do is it allows us to avoid the things that what? Not bring us peace. It allows us to avoid the things that disrupt our peace. The peace is already there. Mm. I already experience peace. Peace can be your default setting as long as you don't let all of these other things interrupt it. And that's where minimalism comes in. It allows me to remove the things from my life that are disrupting the peace. And it allows me to say no to the things before they come into my life. Because the easiest way to declutter is to say no before it even comes into your house. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, 
Man, I, yeah, I, I don't know how I could say it better. The only thing I can really add is, yeah, minimalism isn't going to make you happy. Um, th- that's not what Josh and I propagate. That's not what we even talk about in our own journeys. We talk about how minimalism helped us clear out uh, and make room for uh, a meaningful life. And, and that's really what I hope people get out of this. It's not about like organize your things, declutter your closet, and then all of a sudden like you're going to, you're going to be happy. I mean, it's, there's all that internal stuff. And I think when we tackled that external stuff, it made room for us to kind of deal with that internal stuff. The only thing that can make you happy is you. I mean, it's, it's not minimalism. It's not your romantic partner. It's not your friends. It's not your family. Sure. Those are all great accents and they can all influence the way that you live your life. Um, but yeah, I, I would, uh, I would just say that like, it's only you that can make you happy. And happiness too is like, I, I even kind of get stilted when I say that because happiness is such a misnomer. Like it's, it's this thing where we're like, well, if, well, if we're living a happy life, well now, now we're successful and now, and now we're doing life right. Well, no one does life a hundred percent right first off and to be happy a hundred percent of the time, um, it's, it's unreasonable expectation. So, you know, just going back to the piece that you were talking about, the question is like, how can you have more peace in your life? How can you live a meaningful life? Uh, a peaceful, meaningful life. And when you do that, like happiness is this beautiful byproduct that will happen every once in a while. Mm. But, um, but yeah, happiness is such a, I chased it for so long and I would, I would get it. And as soon as I grabbed it, it'd be ripped out of my hands and then I chase it more and it just ended up being a chase. And what do you say about chases? Josh, every chase leads to misery mm. eventually. Yeah. Mm. Shout out to our Patreon live stream. Thank you so so much much for joining us. Yeah. Let's return to the public version of the podcast real quick. Ryan, I got a great added value segment for you. Something way out of left field. Before we get to that, real quick, for right here, right now, here's one thing that's going on in the life of the minimalist. Or should I say four things going on in the life of the minimalist? Or maybe it's just one thing. It's TikTok. We were talking about this on the private podcast earlier. But we have four different ways to simplify or maybe enhance, amplify your TikTok feed. There's four different accounts. Of course, you could follow The Minimalists on TikTok. We're just at The Minimalists. You can follow my writing class on TikTok, How to Write Better if you want different writing tips and writing insights. We have How to Love, my wife's podcast, so you relationship insights. And then if you really want some beauty in your life, minimalist design, minimalist architecture, minimalist well-being, you can follow our side project. It's called Minimalism Life. And it's just at minimalism on TikTok. We'll put a link to all of those in the show notes. But if you're looking, if you're on TikTok and you're looking to enhance your TikTok feed, you can follow The Minimalists. You can follow How to Write Better. You can follow How to Love. And you can follow at minimalism. For our added value segment this week, Ryan, I have a towel. Nice. (laughs) Awesome. This towel adds value to my life. Cool. Goodbye, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) So here's the thing, right? I have had the same beach towels since we lived in Montana, which Mm -hmm. I didn't have to use very frequently in Montana, strangely. (laughs) Occasionally, we'd go up to Flathead Lake and I would need some sort of towel. But Ella hated our towels. They were too thin. They were old. They were falling apart. And she kept saying, oh, I want a different towel. And eventually, I'm like, okay, we've had these towels forever. They're tattered. They're falling apart. They're a decade old. We need to do something else with our towels. Mm. Like the towels were older than Ella. Mm. And so I started researching, trying to find 
A, a towel that works really well, but B, one that didn't break the bank. Yeah. And I found it. It's called, I don't know, Exclusivo. I, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Ryan, you can check it out here. I'll put it up on the, the screen. Mm-hmm. You can wrap yourself in it, Ryan. Nice. I can attest. It is very soft. And here's, here, here's what I'll say. I got this off of Amazon. I looked at the reviews. The reviews were awesome. And it comes in a bunch of different colors as well. So right now, Jordan, through his own magic mm-hmm. on the screen, he's going to put up, it comes in green. And it comes in pink, and it comes in blue. He's a real wizard. Uh, is that am I allowed to say wizard? I uh, think magic so. person. <laughs> <laughs> I believe that's the politically correct term. Yes, oh, yes. All, all of the uh, wizards will be happy that you use that politically correct term. So I'm not encouraging you to go get brand new towels if you don't need them. But if you're looking, I spent so much time researching these towels, the Exclusivo. And by the way, this is obviously not an ad. It's a 100% cotton, super absorbent, soft, plush, oversized, 35 by 70 cabana stripe beach towel. This totally sounds like an ad. It does. It's great. Uh, No. So (laughs) use promo code anal beads. (laughs) See, not an ad. To be charged twice as much. Yeah. Um, I will say one thing, Milburn, that I really appreciate about you is that because you do have such, uh, you pay such close attention to detail. Like if I need to replace something, like I have a vacuum Mm -hmm. that, you know, Mariah and I have had for nine years and, uh, it is falling apart. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I see that you have one, (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, that's different than the one that I have. So like, I can be like, Oh, how does that work? And like, I know that you've gone out of your way to like get something of quality. So with the beach towels, yeah, that's a great recommendation. Uh, Mariah and I, I went out and got, um, so we were at, I could probably talk about the, yeah, this is a private podcast, right? No, we're back on the public one. Mm-hmm. It doesn't yeah. matter. We were at someone's house that we were doing an interview, a podcast with in Portland, Oregon. And they had these um, context, context towels, uh, context ca- cotton towels. Mm-hmm. And it was like, I was drying my hands. I'm like, oh my goodness. Like these are the softest. This is like the softest towel I've ever felt in my life. And then I went to go look it up and they were like 300 something dollars a towel. And I'm like, (laughs) oh, I'm not spending 300 bucks on a towel. But I did find a substitute. Um, Anyway, long story short, a good soft towel is like a game changer. And this this is relatively inexpensive. I'll also say this. You have to watch wash it twice because there's a lot of lint you have to get out of it mm, the first yeah. two washings. Mm. That's our show for today, Simpletons. Yeah. On behalf of Ryan Nicodemus, TK Coleman. Oh, poor TK. Get well soon. Yeah. Alabama Podcast, Sean, Jordan No More, Professor Sean, Social Jess, Danny Unknown, Post-Production Peter, Emma the Immigrant, and the rest of our team. I'm Joshua Fields Milburn. If you leave here today with just one message, let it be this. Love people. And use towels. <laughs> because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all. Thank you so much, y'all. We'll see you next time. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing. That's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'll be fine without it